Hey, Digitally China is produced together with our friends at Radii, this awesome independent media platform. If you're interested in culture and innovation in China, you should definitely check out RadiiChina.com. They'll give you an inside look into everything from China's underground music scene to bike sharing. That's RadiiChina.com. If we look at the data, I just I did a quick、uh, kind of screen for this. China and Hong Kong corporates that are in the tech and communication industries. We've seen about 161 corporate offerings so far this year, and that's compared to last year, 224 in the whole year in this smaller segment. So we're already, you know, halfway through the year, June 30th. We're already at 72 percent of last year, so we are kind of at a faster pace. Last year, 32 Chinese companies IPO'd on the U.S. stock market, which is the highest number in nine years. And that's not even including high-profile companies such as Meituan Dianping and Xiaomi that got public on the Hong Kong stock market. This year, the growth trend seemed to be accelerating even more, with the IPO of Luckin Coffee in the U.S. and the rumored secondary listing of Alibaba in Hong Kong. In today's episode, we're trying to figure out what it means for Chinese tech companies, why they are IPOing at a faster rate than before, and at the same time understand how this whole process works. Welcome to Digitally China, a podcast about the fascinating Chinese, Chinese tech, tech industry. industry created together with Radii. I'm Eva. I'm Jacob, and I'm Tom. According to various studies, China's gaming industry is now, in fact, the largest in the world. You may know their messaging app called WeChat. Chinese outbound M&A. Chinese corporates are buying international、yeah. companies at record pace. Hottest phone you've probably never heard of. China's Xiaomi. Yes, it's state. It's claim to Apple's crown. Major deal over in China. You have Chinese tech giant Tencent leading an 8.6 billion dollar acquisition to buy a major stake in Supercell. 14.3 billion dollars in sales clocked by a Chinese e-commerce site in one wild day. Yeah, so I remember Xiaomi's IPO last year caused a lot of hype because people were hoping that it would smash Alibaba's record. So when they went public on the New York Stock Exchange, they actually became the world's largest IPO because they raised twenty-five billion dollars. And I remember last year, what ended up happening is I think Xiaomi raised five point four billion. So you know that's not even a quarter of what Alibaba raised. Yeah, and there have been similar hype surrounding a lot of the Chinese tech companies, you know, IPOing lately, and everything from the supposedly Starbucks killer, Luckin Coffee, to Billy Billy, the live streaming or video platform, and that's why I think this topic is kind of interesting because it's been in the media quite a lot lately. And finally, we get this opportunity to kind of figure out what this actually means. Yeah, and I think often as well with these Chinese tech IPOs, especially let's say in Hong Kong, but probably more specifically in the U.S., I always find that it can be challenging for Chinese tech companies to articulate their business model and product and the market that they're aiming at、uh, properly or accurately to non-Chinese investors. So before we start. It's important to note that nothing we or the guests say in this episode should be taken as investment advice or as indicators of company or stock performance. And since neither I nor Tom specialize in this area, we tapped an expert, James Hall, 
He's based in Beijing and spends his days analyzing Chinese tech companies. So my name is James Hull. I uh, manage portfolios for friends and family and basically high net worth individuals. I've been in China for, this is my 12th year. So my, my company name is uh, Hull X, and I have a website, hullx.com, where I share some thoughts kind of on a blog. And I'm also the co-host of a podcast called China Tech Investor. It's roughly weekly, and each episode's about an hour long, and we have a watch list of Chinese tech companies we follow and occasionally talk about broader trends that are going on uh, that affect these Chinese companies. So one of the first things that James mentioned was this rush and the increased activity from Chinese companies hitting up the public stock markets, both in the U.S. but also in Hong Kong. And he actually gave a lot of very interesting points regarding IPOs, but also the other ways that these Chinese tech companies use the public markets to access more capital. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like there's sort of been a rush to IPO for tech companies. By tech companies, I'm including uh, communications companies in that usually, you know, to IPO. There's kind of been a rush to IPO in both countries. And we can see that with, you know, the media coverage on Lyft and Uber, SoftBank, and now Alibaba's secondary listing in Hong Kong. But uh, a little kind of less talked about issue is um, there's also been a lot of not just IPOs, but additional offerings. So like secondary offerings, kind of like what Alibaba is doing by U.S. listed Chinese tech companies. And some of these include uh, Pinduoduo, Xiaomi, you know, Billy Billy, Baozun, Huya, Chu Tuotiao. All these companies have done additional offerings. But in addition to that, uh, there's also been a lot of... Uh, companies issuing either notes or bonds to raise additional capital. So, you know, not just selling equity, but also selling uh, kind of fixed income instruments. And these kind of most recently, Weibo just announced one that's probably going to close next couple of weeks or something. But there's also YY, Tencent, Baidu, and IGE. IGE, I think, did a, a couple um, and bite dance as well. What James just mentioned actually reminds me of an episode that we did a few weeks back on China's tech slowdown. So in that episode, we spoke to Gusi, who does marketing at a startup. And in that episode, she mentioned that it's been a lot harder to raise funding this year for startups. So she talked about an anecdote where, you know, back in the day, Zhongguancun, which is uh, this area where tons of startups are based in Beijing, you could just walk down Zhongguancun and maybe a VC hanging at a cafe would, you know, call out to you and offer you funding. Kind of an exaggeration, but just describing how hot the VC market was. But in February uh, and earlier this year, there were a lot of reports about the intense slowdown of China's venture capital market. Like a research firm, Zero, zero to IPO, they said that the number of deals and the value of deals went down more than 60% year on year in January. So this is pretty drastic and it makes me wonder if the lack of capital perhaps in the VC market is also pushing startups to seek that money publicly. 
Yeah, as always, you know, this market is really complicated. At the same time, as VCs are slowing down and there are less access, especially for more early stage startups, for certain other categories of companies, you know, the access to private capital has increased a lot since the historic Alibaba IPO many, many years ago. You know, we've got the SoftBank Vision Fund. We got this, saw this buying billion dollar positions in Uber and whatnot. And actually, when I spoke to James about it, his conclusion was that there were a lot of different reasons why companies would go public. One of them is the normal reason, which is that they need to raise more money from the public markets and maybe the other options are more limited or where the valuation isn't good enough. But for certain startups or companies, it's also got a lot to do with credibility. So either, you know, it's an ego thing that the founder really wants to have a you know publicly listed company because that's a cool thing to have. But also for some other startups, it's all about when you're publicly listed, you have these you know official reports, you have different other rules regarding auditing and stuff like that makes you look more real and serious to your potential strategic partners or your clients or whatnot. Yeah, and I, I guess part of me wonders how the larger environment is affecting this trend of Chinese tech companies rushing, I guess, quote unquote, rushing to go public. I've heard people talk about the U.S.-China trade war. People are anticipating, let's say, more difficult IPO circumstances or conditions in the future. Maybe they're just choosing to go public now. Right. Like this is very different. But I remember also with ICOs in the crypto market, um, a lot of people would just issue their own token because they knew that regulations were going to tighten up. So they were just trying to take advantage of the regulatory environment at present. So I wonder if the larger environment also plays a role. Yeah, you're definitely right. That was my spontaneous first reaction when I saw the numbers about, you know, the increased activity on the public markets, which is that, you know, so many Chinese companies might be worried now that maybe this is the last chance for them to raise money before, you know, it's too late or before you see a winter or whatever you want to call it. And James actually had a few really good thoughts about this topic. I don't think it's necessarily China, Hong Kong related. I think the trade war might be impacting that, but there's also a pretty big correction, like Q4 of 2018. And so if you're going to sell shares, if you want to sell anything, you'd rather sell to a willing buyer than to a willing seller, right? So (laughs) um, we have seen a lot of companies, a lot of kind of later stage funded companies that are definitely mature enough to be public companies and they can kind of wait and pick their moment. So when you see them sort of picking their moment, you know, one way to interpret that is it might be indicative of a, you know, nearing a market uh, top, right? Well, I also think that, and this has been in the works for a long time and who knows if it will actually attract tech companies, but I know that the Shanghai board is also trying to loosen restrictions. So previously, like they didn't let companies that didn't have a certain track record of um, making profit, they wouldn't let those companies list, which I think for tech startups is very limiting because a lot of companies aren't making a profit when they are seeking um, public funding, let's say, in an IPO. So I wonder, and this is uh, speculative, which is, I guess, uncharacteristic of me, but I wonder now if maybe in the future, if it's tougher to go public overseas, but there's still this demand for funds, if some tech companies will choose to list domestically or list twice, right? Like you mentioned, there could be like a rumored 
second listing of Alibaba as like China's trying to get more of its homegrown tech companies to go public in China, in mainland China, I should say. Yeah, definitely. Because at the same time, we've seen the increase of activity to tap public markets from Chinese tech companies. We've also seen a very big increase in Chinese tech companies choosing other markets than the American markets. Last year, we saw this big Xiaomi IPO in actually Hong Kong, and Meituan Dianping was also in Hong Kong. And this is actually a topic we discussed with James. What's giving the rise for the Hong Kong stock market now, and why it's popular among Chinese tech companies? Yeah, so a big change actually happened in Hong Kong last year. It's kind of interesting. It goes back a little farther, and maybe I can I can start there. You know, if we go back to 2014, Alibaba is looking at IPOing, and they're looking at either Hong Kong or the U.S. And they went back and forth, and Hong Kong basically had a policy. The Hong Kong Exchange (HKEX) had a policy where they wouldn't allow weighted voting rights or dual-class shares companies to be listed. So Alibaba was like, okay, well, thank you. We're going to go to the U.S. And so that's what they did. Then fast forward, you know, four years later, 2018, in those four years, a lot of companies, I mean, a lot of tech companies in the U.S. IPO'd. And a lot of them have dual class share structures. So fast forward four years and Xiaomi is thinking about where they want to IPO. And, you know, they talked to China about doing the the CDRs, China depository receipts or some sort of cross listing thing that ended up not working out. And then they were kept going back and forth with Hong Kong and Hong Kong issued a consultation conclusion about dual class shares. And they basically said, okay, we'll allow them under, you know, certain restrictions, okay? So the restrictions are, are important. Um, it's not quite as freewheeling in the U.S. In the U.S., SNAP did a dual-class structure, and their ordinary shares, this is just totally mind-blowing, but their ordinary shares have zero voting rights, which is amazing. So in Hong Kong, that's not allowed. So you, you have to have some voting rights, And in Hong Kong, they also, you know, companies that do this have to have kind of special characteristics, like they need to kind of be defined as emerging or innovative sectors. Because, you know, one of the reasons for these dual class structures is that you have a, you know, an innovator, an entrepreneur that comes up with, you know, really cool business, sometimes it's high tech, and it's their baby, right? And they need to raise a lot of money sometimes to, you know, either get market share or build, you know, R&D. Usually, I think it's mostly spent on marketing, though. But, you know, you need to grow your business and those expenses require raising a lot of money. And when you raise a lot of money, you lose, you know, control of your company, typically. But with these dual class structures, you can raise a lot of money and still control the company. Now, even though you have more votes, the reason why this kind of works is that if you don't have as many votes, but you, you own the ordinary shares or class, whatever the class is that has the lower uh, weighting, you still get the same amount of dividends, you know, if there is a dividend. So you still have the same ratio or claim on the company, you know, the, the ownership of the company. But when it comes to deciding what the company does, 
you know, you have less votes. So Hong Kong also added some other things like for these weighted voting rights companies, they have, they'll have a W next to their name. And also, and this is kind of, I think, really important for the, the class of shares that have higher voting rights, when those shares get transferred, so that can be in, in like at death or, you know, if you try to sell them to someone else, when that happens, they lose those extra voting rights. They go back to the ordinary share, which basically means that those voting rights won't last forever. I guess the rationale there is that, okay, you're the entrepreneur, you're the innovator, this is your baby, you have the vision, you, you know, have the idea, you know, you're the one that gets more votes, you know, this is your thing. But once you sell that, those shares, <laughs> or once, you know, people don't live forever, right? Uh, once you pass away, then then that's it. <laughs> so that's a little different. So still, even now, companies that are looking at doing a listing, you know, they will consider this, right? Yeah, one thing that actually hits me here is that, you know, we were living in such a hype uh, around this kind of new generation of tech companies that uh, needs to operate under totally new rules where we have this super cool, awesome Elon Musk type of founder that needs to have all the control because he's the only one that can make the decisions for the company and decide what's right. And that's kind of interesting because so many years of experience built what the stock markets are today, especially the Hong Kong one, right? And they had to change the rules in order to accommodate this new way to run these companies where shareholders have literally no rights in terms of deciding which direction the company should go and a very few set of selected people are allowed to decide. Yeah, and I think that, you know, appeals to a lot of founders and going back to the new Shanghai board that I mentioned earlier, I think it'll be pretty tough for them to compete with Hong Kong. Because I think, you know, in addition to the U.S. having more capital, I think another part is that um, U.S. investors, I guess the assumption is that they're also more perhaps tech savvy. I know like the restrictions on, let's say, only listing companies with a track record of generating profit on the mainland. That was introduced to protect mainland investors from buying into firms, you know, at inflated prices. So I think part of these restrictions can serve as like, I guess, investor protection but yeah, for these two boards, if they want to attract more investors or more capital, they'll have to kind of ease up these restrictions. But one thing that I think is kind of smart that Hong Kong did now, and at least on paper sounds smart, is this whole thing that these voting rights aren't transferable. So I guess it's a way of saying that, you know, whenever you mature, then you become a, you know, more a traditional company and you as a founder maybe exit and stop working, then it's going to be run more like a normal traditional company where everyone got equal voting shares and all the shareholders can join in and decide the future of the company. So then in your conversation with James... Did you get a sense of, I mean, not Hong Kong versus mainland, but maybe some key differences between Hong Kong and the U.S. and maybe why a Chinese tech company would pick one or the other? So uh, besides this whole thing about voting rights, he mentioned a few very key differences. One of them is obviously auditing. Like they have different standards of how they're supposed to report numbers in terms of financial performance for the companies. And that might be very important depending on the type of business you run. But the second thing he also mentioned was in regards of looking at it more pragmatically. Like if a new company wants to list and raise capital, 
capital, they need to analyze the different stock markets. Do they already have very strong competitors on, let's say, the U.S. stock market? Um, the investors on these different stock markets, are they used to buying shares in companies in this specific industry? Oh, there's definitely other things to look at. There's regulatory differences that cover anything from governance to accounting standards. So, you know, like governance would be, you know, rules about directors and things like that. But then in addition to all of that, you know, you'd want to look at kind of the makeup of the market participants in each for each exchange, because these are this is the group of potential investors that you're basically going to be partnering with that you're selling shares to. And so, you know, is there a base or is there a large base or how large is the base of investors there that understand your industry and your business? If it's not large, you're going to have to do a lot more explanation, kind of going around telling the story and just to get them up to understanding what your business is. And then there's also what's the makeup of the investor base is can you find long-term investors? Ideally, you you know, if you're partnering with people you want to usually want it to be long term especially uh, I think in capital markets and share structures and then but then there's the other kind of thing which is you know if you're selling shares in the US you're going to receive dollars for your shares but if you're selling in Hong Kong you're going to receive Hong Kong dollars and while you know the Hong Kong dollar is freely convertible and pegged you know within a range Right now, or for as long as that remains, uh, you know, that's less of a concern. But if you were going to consider listing inside China and receiving RMB, which is not freely convertible, you know, I think that would be kind of a, a big difference. I think also it depends on what the company's core business is and if they think people outside of China will understand it, you know. I mean, the thing is, I feel that. I don't think entrepreneurs are maybe hyped about the Shanghai board, to be totally honest. I guess my general sense is that Hong Kong and the U.S. are still seen as more desirable. And perhaps that's because of prestige, but perhaps it's also because of the amount of funding that they'll raise through those markets. So, yes, like I think Shanghai and the government want to attract more IPOs. But whether or not they can successfully entice tech companies to list there, I think it, it will have to take more than just slightly loosening up the regulations. You know, like before it was way more restricted than Hong Kong and the U.S. And now perhaps it'll be less, but it's still not on par, especially if you factor in the experience of investors in Hong Kong, the U.S., and the amount of funding they can offer entrepreneurs and startups, right? So... I don't actually know if, you know, a burst of tech company IPOs in mainland China is something that's going to happen in the near future. But I could be wrong. But I think like right now it doesn't really feel that way. Yeah, I think another barrier is just the closed border. So it's not as easily to, you know, take in uh, external capital into China and or take it out. And therefore, it kind of closes doors on a lot of outside investors. And especially when it comes to the RMB, it's not as easy to trade with it uh, across the international market, which just makes it a little bit harder and less secure, you know, for an outside investor with a lot of capital. And I think that will be one of the main challenges for, for example, you know, domestic tech IPOs to raise a lot of money from also foreign investors that represent a large chunk 
of the wealth in the world. And actually, when talking about domestic IPOs, James also had a point about the potential impact on the domestic economy. But, I mean, the, the, the real thing is, like, look, a lot of these technology companies have created massive wealth in the world. And by kind of not, you know, by whatever circumstances there are, these these companies have listed outside of China and created a lot of wealth outside of China, right? And so that's, you know, that's great for people who were able to be a part of that. It's not quite as great for people who did not have the chance or, or even couldn't, but wanted to. So, you know, it's, I mean, I think it's got to get to the point where there's more domestic IPOs. I think the the China Nasdaq, which we've done, um, we've done an episode on on that on China Tech Investor, but I think that's a step in the right direction. I feel like covering crypto at one point in my life, especially around the ICO period, has made me really cynical about wealth creation via these things. I mean, no, it's true. Like, I think it's great for the public to be able to benefit also in the success of companies. I guess I'm just skeptical of, at least in the beginning, that there would be some insider trading, especially for really hyped up IPOs, right? Like, let's say Alibaba was going to list for the second time in China. I just, like, it would just be madness, right? Because everyone knows it's going to make a ton of money and everyone wants to get in. And, of course, you have to wait until it goes public. And I think just in the process leading up to its IPO, I can just imagine it being insane. Not that it wouldn't be crazy out of China, but especially for, like, a new board, I think. I don't know. What what are your thoughts? Well, I think I'm slightly more optimistic about it. So, number one, it would be great addition for the Chinese economy. Imagine if the first Alibaba IPO would have happened in China instead. How much would that have fed the country where Alibaba comes from and makes their money from? And, And the second thing I think is overall in China, there are way less opportunities for people to invest their money in China versus a lot of other countries. That could be a good thing and also a bad thing. You know, we still remember the crisis in 2008 and all that. But no matter what, I think it's good for the overall economy that people have more options to put their money. Maybe that makes the real estate market not go as crazy, whatnot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if at the end of the day it results in um, more valuable companies, more of those being created in China because there's more, let's say, capital flowing back into the domestic market and um, companies have like another channel to raise funds and also consumers have another way to invest their money besides like the domestic stock market and buying houses, then yeah, I think it could be positive. Besides BAT, there's still a lot of really promising Chinese tech companies that haven't gone public yet, like DD and ByteDance, right? So I think those are definitely potential. I mean, who knows if they'll IPO ever or if in the near future, but I think those are definitely potential opportunities that people could look forward to. Um, and perhaps they would also consider listing in China. Yeah, there have been a lot of rumors about both DD and ByteDance, right? And I think the main difference between them and a lot of other uh, potential companies that have listed or are thinking about listings that they have actually pretty solid businesses and they operate at a huge scale. And from that perspective, I think it makes sense that, you know, a lot of things are happening in Shanghai now where they're trying to enable more tech companies to go public because I would imagine that at one point, 
both ByteDance and Didi needs to go public considering all the stock options they've given out and the employees they want to make rich, all the investors that have been with them since you know day one that also want to kind of get their money out of the company at some point. And all that just creates kind of a full circle of money flowing around. And of course, from a Chinese perspective, you would want to keep that within China because then maybe those money can go somewhere else and invest in a, you know early stage startup or another fund or you know whatever that could be. So for this week's episode, we kind of had a different format. You know, we tried to understand this trend a little bit better, um, but didn't focus on a particular company. And I think next episode, we will be talking about something that I think will be really fascinating, which is learning more about the recruiting process, so how companies hire tech talent. So I'm interested to hear more about people's experiences when they interview at uh, Chinese tech companies here, and also what recruiting strategies or norms uh, take place in this market. So as always, thanks again for listening, and if you want to give us any feedback, suggestions for topics, uh, please find us on social media. We're on Facebook. Tom and I are also on Twitter. Thanks and see you in two weeks.